Welcome to the Ward Zero podcast, covering the civic issues you most want to talk about. You are now entering Ward Zero. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 1 of the Ward Zero podcast. My name is Asmahan Razavi, and I am joined by Darren Krauss and Jeremy Zhao. Uh, We want to begin by saying that in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge that we live, work, and play on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, including the Siksika, the Gainai, and the Pekani peoples, the Sutina, the Stony Nakoda Nations, Métis Nation Region 3, and all people who make their home in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. So we are going to be doing things a little bit differently with the format for this season. We're going to anchor each podcast with an interview on a hot civic issue. Uh, Then we'll follow it up with a couple of shorter segments and sprinkle in some hot takes and quick hits to round things out. So here is what we are talking about in the season premiere of season three. We've got a Ward Zero interview with Greenline CEO Darshpreet Bhatti. There is more new arena talk downtown sheriffs question mark question mark question mark but we're going to begin with a hot take uh, and i'm going to throw it to you darren okay actually first of all my first mini hot take is wow i really love this new format already (laughs) (laughs) um no but my hot take is is Last of Us. I know that there's a lot of buzz with this show uh, because, of course, it was filmed in, in all parts of Alberta, but a lot of it was done in, in Calgary and area. You know, when we started watching it, I mean, my family, we're, we, we like to watch the zombie stuff anyways. And I guess, you know, this isn't kind of, this isn't necessarily zombie in the truest form, um, but we were looking forward to it. Didn't know the story, but it really is a good show. And I think we had this conversation amongst some of the City Hall journalists today that, you know, does it help or hinder when you watch to see some of these Calgary sites? And for me, I watch it for the entertainment value, but I also get pleasantly surprised when I see like the Globe Cinema or High Low or, you know, all of the little things that that you can recognize just throughout the course and how they've really reimagine the world uh, of uh, around Calgary through this production. So I just want to say it's it's really cool to see uh, and so so happy to see the show out and doing as well as it is. into our first segment. So Calgarians are left with a lot of questions on the inclusion of SNC-Lavalin as a delivery partner on Calgary's $5.5 billion green line. Ward 13 Councillor Dan McLean had this to say on the topic last week. Well, SNC-Lavalin is a very contentious company, I guess. Um, and so that's where they're concerned about how the selection process is done. Now, to be clear, I share those concerns, but City Council itself doesn't, it was not involved. There is no political component from City Council to, to pick these, uh, uh, these partners. So, uh, again, what I was just looking for was transparency. So the least we can do is just tell the residents how these, how the selection process is is done, and then I guess once the contracts are awarded, I'd like to see the components of that as well. 
So to answer some of these questions on SNC-Lavalin's involvement with the Green Line, we are pleased to welcome Green Line CEO, Darshpreet Bhatti. Thanks so much for joining us, Darshpreet. Thank you for having me. Darshpreet, we're going to get started right off the bat. Just There's been a lot of confusion over what a delivery partner is, let's say, as opposed to the development partner. Uh, I mean, is SNC laying the tracks for the Green Line project? Maybe clarify some of that just to start out. Sure. Uh, maybe I'll take a step back just explaining why a delivery partner is needed. Um, so if, if many of our followers uh, or those who at least are a little bit, little bit informed about Green Line, they would remember last year, uh, you know, early last year, we made the decision with the board to introduce a new concept to our procurement, which was called the development phase. The whole intent was uh, the market's volatile. Uh, many of the big projects, the teams that are out there that typically deliver these projects are no longer interested in a lump sum approach. Um, their view was that that process is too closed box or like a black box. Not many things are known. Um, the proponents sometimes don't know all the intentions of an owner, nor do they know all the risks. They end up making assumptions. And that can be sometimes a sticker shock for the owner because they're not aware how these prices were established, what risks are in, what are out. Um, you know, so it can sometimes be in your benefit if the market is doing reasonably okay. But uh, given that it's a contractor's market right now, we wanted to make sure that we don't put ourselves in a position where we're not achieving value out of procurement. So a development phase was introduced with the concept of let's design everything in an open book environment. So they will design it with us, whoever we select. Um, they will assess all the risks with us. They will identify why they see a risk, how they quantify that risk. Uh, they will develop a schedule with us. So, you know, their production rates, their assumptions. Uh, and then eventually we will come to uh, a pricing exercise where we will know what's in, what's out and why. And we can have an open negotiations with the contractor throughout those different steps uh, with the single uh, intent to make sure that we're bringing the best value, the best uh, recommendation back to our board and to our council. When you go through a, uh, an exercise like that, where you're doing everything in an open book environment, you as an owner also need to be very informed. Uh, you need to think like a contractor. Uh, you, you know, it's not just a design exercise. You need to know how uh, and why the other side is perceiving a particular designed to be an issue or why they're designing something the way they're proposing it, uh, and then eventually the costs that are associated with it and the schedule that would uh, eventually be formed as a result of those assumptions. Although we have expertise in-house and we brought a lot of um, leaders from, uh, I would say, across North America to be part of our team on the owner side, on the city side, uh, that's still only a few handful of individuals. So we need a, a you know bigger team to inform us so that we can go in those negotiations uh, meaningfully and come up with reasonable solutions. And that's where the delivery partner concept came from. So we put an open tender out there saying we're sort of seeking these different discipline uh, expertise. It was open to public, so it wasn't limited to a, a, you know, a particular group or a particular firm. And then we received uh, submissions. That submission process, just like any other procurement that the city undertakes, uh, you know, has uh, basic core principles that we need to adhere to. And I mentioned that to our council, transparency, fairness, uh, and making sure that, you know, the basic tenets of, uh, you know, selecting a good contractor are there, which requires, it to make, requires us to make sure that we are compliant with a number of trade agreements. Some of them are federal. 
Uh, some of them are local. Uh, we also need to comply with acts. Uh, you know, we want to make sure that the companies that are bidding on these projects, not just one, but all of them, uh, you know, they aren't uh, indicted under the Corruption uh, Act or, you know, something tied to collusion or something tied to unethical behavior. If they meet all of those requirements, um, they meet all the technical requirements, at the end, anyone who's going through procurement wants to choose the most competent team. And that's what we did. Uh, we also had a fairness monitor oversee it so that we weren't biased towards one team over the other. Uh, we also had our external legal counsel to make sure that all the checks and balances we have in place and the confirmations that we're receiving from all of our proponents are valid. Uh, yes, someone can lie on these forms that we have, but then if they are, we have the ability to uh, let go of them at any point uh, that we find out that they were not being factual or being honest with us. Uh, so we went through that whole exercise to select an SNC's one team uh, in a group of uh, five members uh, who all bring their distinct um, skills to us, both from having delivered projects like these, um, as well as having designed many projects. They have played different roles on different uh, contracts over the course of, I would say, in the last 30, 40 years, each one of them have been part of a number of transit-related projects. Uh, so we weren't looking for one team. We were looking for a group of companies coming together with a strong um, yeah, sort of experience in multiple disciplines that you would need to manage a project, but also to manage this development phase, which is uh, unique to Greenline, or at least unique to um city of calgary because i don't believe uh, this concept has been introduced in the past on any of the procurements led by the city uh, so simple answer is no they're not constructing the work they will help negotiate the best deal we can uh, with the future contractor who will be responsible for the design construction and financing of that project all right so uh, obviously snc lavalin the name elicited a uh, a response there. So I'm, I'm just kind of curious, you know, was that rubric um, that was used to kind of score which consortium would would best be your delivery partner? Was that ever revealed to city council? And I guess if this is a two-part question, were there any exceptions made to that scoring rubric? Because we kind of saw with kind of how Ottawa did the LRT process. Obviously, that's the construction side. You know, there were exceptions made. There was um, criticism and then um, I guess a review of kind of how that process works. I'm, yeah. I'm wondering if you could speak to that. Yeah, I can. Uh, so the procurement process that is established by our supply management at the city, you know, those basic concepts are known by council. So, you know, every time you put out a procurement, typically you don't go back to council and say, by the way, I've introduced these uh, policies uh, or these checks and balances because they're already approved once and they get applied as you move forward because that's what you want in a consistent and robust process. Uh, secondly, we have a, a board. So Greenline board has the mandate to manage this project. So on day-to-day -day operational approvals, we go to the board and to various committees within the board as stage gates. So you know, as we're moving forward with any recommendation or any suggestion, it goes through a committee process um, before those recommendations are endorsed and then taken to the board for final approval. So we don't technically come back to council for all the day-to-day -day decisions but just wanted to make sure just wanted to just a simple answer is council uh, not this particular council but a council in the past would have approved the basic principles that go under uh, the procurement policies 
and our job is to make sure that we're complying with them and we're consistently applying them on procurements as we move forward so we don't go back to them but these concepts exist this rubric and this approach uh, has been there with the city the only nuance i would say is in some of the city contracts not all of these different trade agreements and acts are called out they're implied and included but because we were doing this exercise we made sure that we just brought emphasis to it so it wasn't ignored in other contracts it's always there in the boilerplate language that is provided in a, in a request for proposal or request for qualification we just brought it out more to highlight it that as we move forward you know you companies and at that time there were many uh, interested proponents that make sure that you're fully aware of these requirements because if you do move forward we would be assessing you on those uh, so that was the only difference i would say that i'm aware of is that us highlighting those particular requirements up front more so uh, we didn't have to they were part of the boilerplate template uh, requirements but we just felt that it was necessary for us to make sure because there are many entrants potential entrants that they should all be aware of those requirements uh, just on snc uh, alone uh, and if we even carve them out of this group uh, I'm, I'm sure many people are aware like when SSE went through their I think it was called the probation order that um, the uh, courts in Quebec had uh, uh, given to SNC uh, you know in uh, in association with things that they found between 2000 I forget now three and 2011 uh, SNC went through a very rigorous and extreme exercise of bringing many independent views on how they're actually complying with that it's available even on their website today if you, if you get a chance they actually hope they have a whole uh, narrative on uh, their whole journey to meet the integrity requirements uh, by the courts and crown corporations uh, uh, that were involved at that time they brought in actually blake's and i'm forgetting the name of another um, external legal counsel i think it was castles who were involved who basically assessed snc's steps their policies procedures their training how they manage those people who were found to be at fault uh, for the course of I think three or four years so they were hired as an independent monitor from 2019 all the way to 2022 and all of those reports are publicly available so it's not uh, as if no steps were taken so even though uh, they were found and they were charged uh, to be guilty of certain actions they took uh, immediate uh, responses to all the requirements uh, identified by the court and since then they've allowed for an independent entity to monitor them in terms of are they complying with those and how are they changing their culture uh, overall to ensure that something like that never happens. In fact, one of their mottos is that they want to actually set a standard now to show, yes, we made a mistake, but how best not to ever do that again and set a better standard for other organizations to follow. I'm only emphasizing it to say that, yes, every company uh, can potentially do something wrong. Um, but if they have taken all the steps legally to address it and they're not found in breach of anything at this point, there's only so far you can go to hold them accountable for it. Otherwise, then we would be in a situation where we would be becoming subjective rather than objective. And the whole notion of a good, robust procurement is to be a very objective uh, process where you're judging them based on their merit, what they have submitted, what they have complied with, rather than how you may perceive that company uh, to be based on their past actions. Uh, I'm not suggesting that we overlook what they have done, but at the same time, when you have an objective process, you can bring in your views uh, on a particular company uh, into the evaluation process uh, 
because um, that would be then uh, an unfair and un, uh, I would say an unfair process. So we followed everything. As I said, they have given us attestations that they comply with everything, and it's not coming from just a junior individual. These are typically executives of a company, and we have to rely on them. And if they ever are in breach, then we have every right to let go of them. Um, so it's not something that we take lightly. Uh, this whole process of vetting companies through an independent fairness monitor, vetting them through you know external legal counsel is to make sure that we haven't missed any particular perspective uh, or a particular detail that, uh, you know, could potentially lead us into more trouble. We want to make sure that we, you know, we're moving forward with a partner that we can rely on, um, is capable of doing the different types of scopes that we want them to do. Um, and in this case, you know, these uh, lessons, th these challenges they have had are also good lessons learned. So, you know, as a contractor, they have had issues on some projects. In fact, one of our discussions with all the proponents was that we want you to bring those uh, lessons learned to us so we can learn from it. Uh, you know, it would be naive of us or I would say a lost opportunity on us if we said no, uh, you know, they had challenges, so we don't want to deal with them anymore. Um, I think the most proactive approach would be, so, okay, you had challenges, why? What can we do differently as an owner to make sure that we don't have those same challenges, whether they're technical, they were commercial nature or, or cost issues or safety issues, you know, how can we improve our own contract as we move forward? How can we have a good discussion with the future contractor who will build this project uh, for us to learn from you? Um, so you, you're, you sort of started to touch on this. You know, there is a negative perception of SNC-Lavalin in, in the public. And I'm wondering how that perception plays into uh, your decision-making process. And I understand it's an objective process, but do you consider like public trust and, uh, you know, what the public might be, might be thinking and how they might be regarding a partner who has had some, you know, difficulties that are, uh, we've all seen in the press? In an indirect way, yes. And that's where all these checks and balances come. So, you know, the fact that we're looking at, uh, you know, are they in breach of a uh, number of trade agreements or different acts that look at unethical behavior, corruption, collusion, bid rigging, uh, you know, all those tests are meant to make sure that if we're moving forward, you know, that they're not in breach of any of those. Uh, but it cannot be a very, like I said, it cannot be a subjective uh, opinion-based evaluation where, because if I interview 10 people, even within those 10, everyone may have a very different view of a particular company. So it, you cannot use that as a measure to say, well, five of them feel strongly for one, so that's the one we go for. We have to be very objective in our process to say, are they qualified to work in, in the province of Alberta? Are they qualified to work within Canada? Uh, you know, are they on any lists where they're ineligible to work? Are they meeting all these other requirements? And then in parallel, are they technically sound and ready to do the type of work that we want them to do? Are they bringing the right people for the right roles? Do they have the experience? You have to look at all of that collectively to choose the team that moves forward. And again, we're not choosing an ind individual firm, we're choosing a collective group. So in this case, when we were evaluating, we weren't evaluating SNC by itself. We're evaluating the five teams that have come together. So you can't parse out one and say, because of my view on one, now all five of you are disqualified, which would be a very unfair approach for the city to take and uh, one that would be legally challenged by um, everyone and likely we would not ever be in a position to support that. So uh, yes, those uh, concerns are taken into account, but through a more objective process to say, 
you know, they had this history. How do I make sure that not just them, but all of them that are bidding on this project sort of uh, give us this um, confirmation that they're no longer part of it? Uh, so I think you've answered kind of the, the question on you really want to bring in kind of failures or lessons learned from 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 the uh, delivery partners or even the construction partners, who, who whoever that uh, will be at the end. So I'm kind of wondering, you know, we've seen kind of on the news on a high level, you know, issues, uh, for example, with the Valley LRT in Edmonton or kind of maybe lessons learned with the Ottawa, the Trillium line that we were talking about earlier. So I'm, I'm wondering if the, the board or, you know, that delivery partner um, that's been selected, are you are you going to sit down to kind of do like a lessons learned yeah. kind of root cause analysis at the very beginning of the project to kind of learn from those mistakes? So some of some of the areas have, you know, constantly been addressed over time. So I, I didn't read the entire report from Ottawa, but I read their key findings and some of the major ones, uh, you know, I can quickly share. One was tied to governance. You know, obviously uh, in that report, uh, it was implied and suggested that a lot of decisions were made uh, at, at, at the mayor's office level and a uh, few executives from the city rather than uh, having some sort of an independent uh, governance structure. City learned from that, not just because they read the Ottawa report, but prior to the Ottawa report being even issued, they established the board. Uh, the province was part of that decision making and the whole notion behind having an independent board was to make sure that you have people who have subject matter expertise in a number of disciplines that are required to lead a project with a single focus to deliver it successfully. So we have board members who bring in expertise in project management, in finance, in law, in uh, government relations, in uh, administration, um, you know, and many of them have gone through ma major capital programs that involve not just one project, but multiple projects happening at the same time. So, you know, they have no other mandate but to manage this one particular project. Uh, and these are experts uh, and, you know, so their reputation is on the line. Um, they have lots of experience that they're bringing in they were also making sure that we have a strong leadership team on the day-to-day -day basis. Um, you know, so amongst myself, many others have been hired who are coming from projects that are um, equal or bigger than this uh, and uh, are tied uh, to the transit industry. So lots of knowledge was brought in just to make sure that we're, we're not put in that uh, same situation where only a handful of people are making decisions which aren't always necessarily tied to what is the best decision for the city or uh, for the project. So, you know, the board governance in itself addresses that one big one. The other one was Ottawa at that time. OLRT was the name uh, of the entity that existed, but they didn't really have uh, an LRT program. City has here 40 years of experience running an LRT system. So Calgary Transit is, is if you compare the two, at the, you know, at the initial stages of them getting into these two programs, uh, Ottawa was in a position where they had some experience, but not a lot. But not a lot. It was more bus-based system than it was on a light rail system. Calgary is the opposite. You know, we've been running these lines. The public is aware of them. Council has been managing them. So it's a very different level of skill sets. You know, if it was few years, you could say they were equal. But when you have four decades of experience, like it, there's not much more you can learn about LRTs um that calgary transit doesn't already know they've experienced all sorts of ups and downs and different things that can work or not work so that was an that's an advantage that calgary already has the other area that that report for ottawa identified was that the vehicle that they chose was first of its kind in this environment 
in action in, in fact it was being tested in Ottawa to see how it may be then be able to use uh, be used uh, elsewhere in North American market we have purchased a vehicle that is off the shelf so this is not first of its kind it actually is running in similar climates in Europe uh, you know in Norway and other places uh, so we're not relying on a product um, that is going to be the first for Calgary um, and we have Calgary Transit that is not going to be running that train for the first time so drastically different scenarios um, and then the fourth one I think I believe I remember was tied to the contract model so their Ottawa contract at that time was a DBFM design build finance and maintain so they were looking at a long-term concession um, to manage and maintain that uh, line as they would run it and the thinking and in, in the p3 model at that time was to transfer as much risk to the other side as possible so the owner is not responsible uh, it's a lump sum cost i pass it over uh, to the contractor which is a black box for me because i don't know how they priced it and the challenge on those contracts have been at least in my experience over the last 10 15 years has been that typically the lowest price moves forward just how the evaluation is structured uh, technically they're sound um, but it's the pricing that dictates who moves forward and then when challenges come uh, over uh, whether it's a, a construction uh, design related issue or delays you know this whole concept of a lump sum price doesn't really work out you get into lots of claims at that time now this is still a, a cost it wasn't reflected in the original cost that you thought you were getting so these are all additional costs on top of it uh, and we wanted to ignore we wanted to avoid that situation and that's why we created the development phase now we have an open book discussion we won't be surprised by how it's and how the whole project will be designed priced and scheduled uh, and we're not trying to transfer all the risks the whole idea of development phase is to share so understand why they feel it's a pinch point and if we're better suited to manage that risk then we would take that on which wasn't the case when you know when those original p3s were uh, awarded when auto when ottawa lrt uh, was initiated so you know many different uh, techniques between the two uh, many lessons learned that we have already implemented on our uh, procurement so far and to your point many other areas that we can improve so the intent would be to sit down with our partner moving forward on all aspects of the project as i said from design can we do certain things differently because they have built them and maybe through value engineering we can do something that works for both us and the contractor again the intent is to reduce risk um, because risk is where all the money and where all the challenges uh, you know sort of uh, germinate between you and a contractor so the whole intent is look at design look at their assumptions look at construction um, look at understanding of different risks that uh, are beyond just technical so for instance many third parties are involved in, in these projects we as a road owner uh, and a city uh, you know are perhaps sometimes in a better position to manage those third parties because they're tenants on our roadways whereas a contractor has no agreements with these tenants um, and they can only leverage so much of their goodwill and, and, and discussions to uh, encourage the other side to do what needs to be done whereas we have uh, certain legal tools that we can use in the past uh, agencies transferred even that risk to the contractor to say it's your issue you manage how you feel best um, you know because I, I've signed over the dotted line here for a lump sum price so I'm not responsible for it you are we don't want to take that approach we want to really look at okay 
these are certain areas where we are better suited to manage that relationship because we actually have some uh, contractual language between us and, and, and that third party. Uh, we may even have good relations over the course of many decades that they've been tenants on our roadway. Uh, so why transfer that to a third party who doesn't know them and may not be able to manage that relationship and because they can't manage it as well as we can, they're going to price it much higher uh, than we otherwise would. So why would I want them to carry that contingency in their pricing when I know I can do a better job at that? Dr. I just want to finish up with a final question on cost. Uh, the quarterly reports, uh, they yes. always have the cost aspect in yellow. You know, it's yes. its something that is always on uh, the minds of the board. And I'm sure many of the folks who are a part of the Green Line, but obviously the economy has slowed down a bit. There's been some inflationary pressures that have, that, that have eased off. Have you experienced any cost easing at all? And, you know, has that helped the project at all? So at a, a micro level, yes, there are certain contracts where we do see easing off on certain commodities. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a general statement for everything out there. There are uh, still many commodities that are uh, probably still at their peak. Um, so the trend is positive. We're seeing things to be, uh, you know, in, to be in our favor in the long run and as well as in the favor of the contractor. Uh, it will still remain yellow um, until we have the development partner on, on board and we actually understand what the contractor wants. Because right now, you know, as you, as you noted, we're relying a lot on where we think the market is likely to go on all of these different factors but it's not the contractor's view. The whole idea of the development phase was so that we stop doing these peer reviews um, and educated uh, sort of benchmarking exercises and sit down with the contractor to say, okay, here's the design, how are you pricing it? And we go through it. So I, I think within the coming months, as they come on board and start the design effort with us, um, we'll know whether that yellow remains a yellow or, you know, we can start converging towards a green. I'm very confident we will get there. Uh, it will take a little bit of time because uh, what will typically happen in a development phase is they haven't done design yet. They have a good idea of it because we have shared lots of information. Uh, so they'll still have a view of risks uh, up front. Um, and, you know, we'll start off high. And the idea is as we develop more design and have more discussions on risks and we share more, that that number will eventually come to, a, um, you know, a place where both sides are comfortable to say yes that is what's going to actually um, you know cost to build this project uh, as i've said many times contractors will never subsidize this they're not here to give uh, you know pro bono to the city they need, they're here to make money and uh, you know uh, do the project well uh, we need to align with them in terms of what is that cost to get the project really done um, and once we know that number you know we would we would work with our board and and council uh, to see whether that's still within mandate or we need to do something to address it. And that's where the risk discussion comes in play. Um, you know, if we know the Delta is X, we would look at opportunities to see how do you address that gap? You know, can you do it technically? Can you do it commercially? Can you do it through risk sharing? What are all the different tools that we can do reasonably to make sure that we're not having them carry something unnecessarily that uh, we can address? Um, so it will remain yellow. Until, until we have them on board and the intent is to get it to green so we have a successful closure to this uh, procurement. 
Well, Dr. Pate, we just wanted to thank you so much for taking the time uh, to join us. We really appreciate it. And uh, I know I learned a lot. So thank you. Thank you. All right, let's go into our next segment. It's 2023 and we are still talking about the new arena and now it might be in a whole new place uh, or shall I say we, we might be revisiting an old location that uh, came up as, as a place where it might be. So will the new arena be in the West Village? Sonia Sharp, who is the chair of the event center committee, she was asked about this and she said, you know, we are, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, this is a fresh start and we are looking at uh, building the event center within the city um, and all possible options are on the table. Uh, Premier Smith has asked about remediation needs for the area of the former Calgary Creosite site. site. What, do we, what do we think about this? I mean, uh, hello, 2010s. Um, I guess we're moving back in time. Well, I thought the whole uh, conversation was around cost. I mean, to have it, you know, as reimagined as a West Village site now means there's a, a cleanup cost to remove that creosite, site. And, and that was talked about. There was talks about the arena and also maybe putting in, the, you know, a, a replacement stadium for our uh, a CFL team there as well. So I'm wondering, I guess the, the, the conversation is, is great, I guess, in, in the sense that, you know, maybe a new location could restart talks and, and could uh, reimagine things. But there's still like a hundred plus million dollar cost, I believe, to at least remove that creosite. It's not been done yet. So. Yeah. The creosote, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing. Um, I was really intrigued by the premier asking about it. Apparently she asked about it during a recent caucus meeting with Calgary city councilors also there as well. I don't mind the site. And given that the city wants a field house, I know that the city said they're committed to the, the anchor of the field house up at the Foothills Athletic Park. But I think the Stamps need a new home just as much or more than the Calgary Flames do. And this might be an easy way to bring it all together. And I guess for me, the one thing that I think about is, is the impact on the Rivers District. It was built specifically with the culture and entertainment district in mind. And part of that was the anchor that was supposed to be the new arena. I don't know if it's enough to have the BMO Center expansion, the Arts Commons, Music Mile in that area. I just don't know if that's enough to really bring that culture and entertainment district that they had envisioned would happen with the addition of a new event center in that area. Yeah, I'm not sure about that either. I mean, that was the first thing that came to mind when I saw the news about this. For years now, we've talked about the, what's the official name for it, the Rivers District. And this was always, you know, sort of the cornerstone of that, of that district. So how does that impact the, all this sort of planning for the Rivers District? And, and why are we doing this when we've, we'd already done all this planning around the Rivers District? So I, I don't know. I think it's a, I think it's a little strange. If I were to tie it back to our previous segment, we had a green line, you know, is designed a certain way to also incorporate that arena as part of the uh, the station planning. So 
that yellow looks a little bit more solid now on the the report. You know, if this were to, uh, you know, change drastically. Well, it could have a really big impact on the green line. Uh, I mean, part of it is obviously to shuttle folks in and in and out of that area. But you know, on the flip side to that, Jeremy, one of the things that was going to be an issue was the post event exit strategy for the old event center or sorry, the the new event center, the old the event old, center. Yeah. Um, because when you have that group of people, even though the LRT is in the area, they were really concerned that they were going to have to uh, create a little bit more capacity in and around the Inglewood area in order to account for the traffic volume. So, so there might be a little bit of a trade-off there uh, in terms of we lose maybe a little bit from the green line aspect. I don't know how much, but it's a gain because now there's not a, a big capacity issue for vehicles out of the new arena. Uh, I was I was going to just say that uh, if I were someone who were, was looking for certainty from this from the city around things, my my head would just be exploding because I don't know how we plan for areas. Uh, and plan for our future long term if we're like always willing to scrap things and go to, and go somewhere new i don't know i just i just hear business certainty as a topic in other conversations all the time and applying that lens here um drives me a little bit crazy All right, we have another topic to talk about, our final segment of the night, the issue of downtown sheriffs. So if you haven't heard, uh, Edmonton is piloting uh, downtown sheriffs. Um, so this means that there'll be about a dozen sheriffs working in teams with Edmonton police officers over 15 weeks. Uh, the idea is to uh, put more boots on the ground and help police in the city patrol more neighborhoods. Could this be coming to Calgary? Yes. <laughs> yes, it is coming to Calgary. Uh, you know, it's what's good for the goose is good for the gander. I think this is all a part of the province's hands in the downtown revitalization, but also in handling some of the uh, homelessness, mental health and addictions issues that are maybe impacting public safety in these areas. And, you know, for the mayor's part, when I asked her about it, she said, hey, look, if the province wants to invest more money or allocate more resources into putting boots on the ground in the downtown, uh, who are we to stop them? They, I, I think I got from her that we recognize that this problem is twofold at minimum. You have the root cause issues, but then you have the public safety issues. and you're not going to deal with the root cause issues right away. These are long-term problems that have been here for years and dealing with them is probably going to take years longer. What they can do, however, is they can deal with the public safety aspect of this. And I believe that that's what the province is trying to address with these sheriffs in the downtown areas. Uh, and I think it's going to be a, a country-wide trend too, right? We're already starting to see that um, investment, at least on a local level with Vancouver, for example, right? The mayor and his 
political party has indicated we're, we're going to hire, don't quote me on this, 100 police officers and 100 social workers to try and revitalize, you know, parts of downtown, uh, including uh, Vancouver, Chinatown there as well. And we're seeing that already happening. So I don't I don't think it's just relegated to Edmonton and potentially Calgary. It's going to be a, a nationwide discussion. Yeah, you're right, Jeremy. The issue of policing and downtown and safety, I mean, I don't even think it's just relegated to Canada. We've talked in this podcast a lot about um, how, you know, how it's impacted uh, politics in the U.S. Uh, I know that the TTC in Toronto has hired uh, police officers to, I guess, patrol subway cars, uh, create an atmosphere of safety, though I I do know that I saw uh, something in Toronto about how that didn't necessarily relate to uh, correlate with less safety instances. Um, But it's definitely a broader problem. All right. Well, uh, we are going to go into our quick hit segment. Darren? I've just got a few here. $11 million were budgeted for city services to bring the World Petroleum Congress here. 80% of those are security related. I, I was mildly surprised that this actually didn't really register with a lot of people. And, and that could be because of the economic impact that it will that it will bring up. But uh, $11 million to host the event seems like a, a pretty big deal. Uh, the record-setting Nitro Rally Cross happened this past weekend at Stampede Park. More than 20,000 Calgarians came out to watch the two-day event, and organizers said that they'll be back. Uh, in case you missed it, the point-in-time homeless count was done, uh, and 2,782 people were experiencing homelessness on September 27th, 2022. Since we spoke with you last, the Westbrook community's local area plan was approved after a couple of public hearings and a debate. A little bit contentious, not super duper contentious like some of the past ones. Um, The Heritage Communities Plan is up next. And that's all I got, Esmahan. Thanks, Darren. Well, as always, thank you so much for joining us. I am going to throw it to Darren for, uh, for a little promo. Just really quickly, a reminder at Livewire Calgary, and as a product of that, the Word Zero podcast, we're funded by the community. Uh, we're on a mission, 500 members, $10 a month to preserve strong local journalism. We have seen what is happening to some of the local media. We've seen what's happened with Overstory Media Group uh, and some of the journalists that they've had to let go out on uh, the West Coast. We've also seen that Post Media is cutting 10% of their editorial staff. If you value good information, then I think it's time to step up with your wallet. And I guess I can't really have a problem saying that anymore um, because it does cost money to to look into this stuff for folks. So again, $10 a month, we're looking at 500 members. Uh, Hopefully we can do it and that you'll be a part of it. Thanks, Darren. And uh, for those of you who want to talk about municipal politics, there's lots of ways that you can do so. Twitter spaces. Darren, you have soft launch these again. Um, So can we expect these on Friday evenings? Yeah, for the most part, I had to bail last week because my kid had a basketball tournament, but you can put it in your calendar. And more often than not, we will be there for listeners on Fridays at five. And if you have a burning thought that you want to share with us anytime between 
this podcast and, and the next Friday. Follow us on Twitter. Uh, Darren's at Livewire underscore DK. Jeremy is at JZ from Calgary. And I'm at Esmahan YYC. Have a nice, uh, a nice week. And until next time. Mm-hmm.